Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21 to finish up the chapter. Our context is this. In the first six verses of 1 John 4, John tells his readers to test the spirits, in other words, distinguish the heretics from the true Christians amongst them. And now he turns to the topic of God. God is love. He repeats twice in this section, and so that's what we're going to entitle this section of Scripture. We start in verses 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, this is the social test. Let us love one another. This is how we know that we're Christians and that we're in Christ, because heretics don't love one another like Christians do. Now, this loving one another is the law of Christ. As John said in chapter 3, in 1 John, verse 11, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, from the beginning of their salvation experience. We should love one another. It's the foundation elementary principle. We should love one another because love is from God. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. This is going to get us into some theological controversy. This Adam Clark is a, a devout Arminian. He has made no human being for perdition nor ever rendered it impossible by any necessitating decree for any fallen soul to find mercy. In other words, God did not predestine you before the foundation of the world to get saved. He has given the fullest proof of his love to the whole human race, there's general atonement, by the incarnation of his son who tasted death for every man. Every man he tasted death even for Adolf Hitler, even though Adolf Hitler didn't get saved. How can a decree of absolute unconditional reprobation of the greater part or any part of the human race stand in the presence of such a text as this? Unconditional reprobation. Unconditional, in other words, they didn't get saved, they didn't exercise their free will, and so they're going to hell. What a terrible God would do that. The Calvinist God doesn't love. Now, this shows the Armenians love to pin the accusation on Augustinians that if you believe in predestination, then therefore your God is a horrible monster who sends people to hell. Of course, Mr. Clark doesn't acknowledge that the reason that these people are going to hell is because they sinned from the beginning because of the original sin that they inherited from Adam. The whole human race was, had revolted against God, and every last one of us, including Mr. Clark, including yours truly, including whoever is listening to this audio, we all deserve hell, and it's not unjust for us to be there because once you talk about the love of God, you've got to talk about his justice. Well, whenever Armenians start talking like this, I need... I, I love to, to say this. Well, Armenians, you believe in hell, don't you? What kind of a God would let somebody freely pl freely go to hell? You say we have free choice and, and God lets us use our free choice to go to hell. What kind of a loving father is that? If you had a, a father who let his child play on the freeway because he wants to give him his freedom and then the kid gets run over by a truck, is that a loving father? Well, you've got the same kind of God that does that because he gives us a free will that we can go to hell with it. So you haven't solved the problem of hell and God's love and justice any more than I have. Mr. Armenian, let's substitute the word hell for his, quote, absolute unconditional reprobation of the greatest part or any part of the human race. In other words, let's take the Calvinist stuff out of it and just put hell in there, which he believes. So here's how it would read. How can a decree, a decree of hell stand in the presence of of such a text as this? How can a degree of hell stand in the presence of a text that says that God is love? You tell me, Mr. Armenian, and I'll be glad to admit that I've got a problem, which I don't. The word love is used 43 times in 1 John. Woo, 43 times. Notice that it says God is love. It doesn't say that one of his attributes is love. It means God is, in his essence, love. 1 John 4, 9. God's love was revealed among us in this way. 
God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Now that one and only son actually might sound strange to your ears if you're used to the KGV and the traditional translation, which is his only begotten son. That's the way the phrase has been translated ever since the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed translated it that way originally. Only begotten son. Well, of course, that makes it sound like Jesus was born like a human being. But that's not correct, according to Grudem in his systematic theology, and that most modern translations have one and only son. It's interesting how this happened. The Greek is monogenes, and traditionally it was assumed that genes was related to genio, to beget. So the only, mono, only, genes, begotten son. But linguistic study in the 20th century has shown this not to be so, according to Grudem. Rather, the word genes is related to genos, which means class or kind, so it's the only kind or the one kind son which means unique the one and only son the unique son and we can prove that by looking at hebrews eleven seventeen. we have that phrase only begotten son or excuse me monogonus which has been translated only begotten son well let's read it by faith abraham when he was attested offered up isaac he received the promises and he was offering his only begotten son really isaac was not abraham's only begotten son abraham or excuse me isaac had brothers now, when John says that God's love was revealed among us, he's talking about love toward Christians. It was revealed among us, general, excuse me, particular atonement, folks, limited atonement, because Jesus appears to, as a God of wrath to those who don't believe in him, to those who are not in the elect. So God's love was revealed among us in this way. And so God sent his son. Notice, just like Jesus sent the apostles, God sent the son. Romans 8, 3. Here's some scripture showing the sending of his son. What the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in flesh like ours on the sin's domain as a sin offering. Galatians 4, 4. When the time came to completion, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So he gave his only begotten son, as similar to he sent his one and only son. So it was a gift, a gift to us. He could have just left us down here to sin, to live like hellions, but he didn't. He saved his sheep. That we all would live, that we might live through him. And this is the implication of that if you're not in him, if you don't, if by the God's, by the instrument of Jesus' grace, you don't accept him, you don't live, that means you die. And that's what's happening with the world without Jesus, dying. And it's amazing to me how many foolish worldlings out there think they're living as they snort their cocaine, as they spin their theories of universal justice and peace and harmony amongst mankind, and then they create hells on earth like at the French Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, Venezuela, California. 1 John 4.10, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love consists in this. Is love a feeling? Is love an affection? Is love an intention? No, love is an action. What did God, Jesus do? What did God do to show us his love? Did he just feel good about us? No, he sent his son. He sent him. He did something. Likewise, if we imitate that love, we love our brothers, we do something for them. We just don't feel good about them. Not that we love God. No, we didn't love God first. He loved us first. The same John that wrote First John wrote the Gospel of John in chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You love God because God's drawing you. I know that that 
contradicts our Arminian feelings, does it not? We chose God. No, 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 no. The Father chose you. Let's get the priorities right here. God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, the word propitiation we've already discussed in a previous audio, in an earlier chapter of 1 John, I think it was chapter 2. His Grudem's definition of that word, quote, a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end, and in so doing changes God's wrath toward us into favor. Into favor. And, of course, that's just another word for appeasement. You usually hear propitiation, you think appeasing God's wrath. Now, I found a great article, I think it was by R.C. Sproul, that, that distinguishes three very close words in English, expiation, atonement, and propitiation. Let's distinguish them. Expiation is the act of forgiveness. In other words, mankind needed expiation for sins. Somebody has to do expiation to get rid of mankind's sins. Well, how? There has to be an atonement. That's the sacrifice by which the expiation is obtained. That's the covering of our sins. The blood sacrifice that Jesus offered on the cross, that's how expiation is obtained. And then propitiation is the change in God's attitude toward us, the peace of God's wrath, turning us from his enemy into his friend. But those three words are obviously very close. So now, God loves us. He's no longer angry at us. Our sins do not make him angry at us because our sins are washed away. They're atoned for. First John 4, 11, 12, and 13. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, in what way? By sending his son. We also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is perfected in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given assurance to us from his spirit. Now that first if there is a little bit confusing. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, there's no question that God loved us in this way. He sent his son. So why do they translate it if? Well, because in Greek, that's a first-class conditional, and those technically, accurately, should be translated if. And it means it's likely to be, to be fulfilled, but not necessarily to be fulfilled. Well, here it's necessarily, of course, God loved us to be in this way. And so we say in modern English sense, and then NIV translates it that way, since God has loved us in this way, even though that's not technically the way the Greek should be translated, because NIV is more of a paraphrase. It's not, it's not a paraphrase. It's a dynamic equivalent. It talks the way we talk. So it's since God loved us in this way by sending his son, a propitiatory sacrifice, we must also love one another because what Jesus does, we imitate because he's our great example. No one has ever seen God. Now the question arises here, why does John mention not being able to see God right in the middle of, a, of an exhortation to love one another? He says the same thing in John 1 verse, in the gospel of John, chapter 1 verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the one and only son, the one who is at the father's side, he has revealed him. Well, why does John say that here? Well, John Gill has the answer. One can't see God. One can't come to him as to a person and love him as a person. But you can do that with your brother. So that's his point. John's point is that, look, we can't love God. It's hard for us to love God. We can't see him. But if we love one another, that's how you love God. Because if you love one another, love your brother, God abides in you or remains in you and in is in union with. So God re remains in union with us. Let me give you the quote from John Gill, quote, Here the sense is that whereas God is invisible in his nature and incomprehensible in his being and perfections, so that there is no coming to him and seeing of him and conversing with him in a familiar way, and so not of loving him as he is in himself and ought to be loved, as one friend sees, converses with, and loves one another, and finds his love increased by sight and conversation, then we ought to love the saints and people of God who are visible, may be seen, come at, and conversed with. Well, come at your brothers, ladies and gentlemen. Converse with them. And that's how you love them. Here's what Jameson Fawcett Brown says. Quote, 
hath appointed his children as the visible recipients of our outward kindness which flows from love to himself. That's just fancy words. We all know what this means. You can't see God, but you can see your brother. So love your brother. You're loving God. If you do that, God stays with you. He abides with you in union with you. And of course, there's another if there. Same thing. It's well, I don't know. That, that's not sense. If we love one another, there's a possibility we might not love one another. So if we do love one another, God remains in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, the question is, is is it God's love that's perfected? How can God's love be perfected? How can it be brought to maturity? How can it be made complete? God's love is perfect in itself. As soon as you say God's love, there's no greater love than that. It can't get any bigger. God's love. It can't get any better. So obviously this is this is Christians love either for God or for the Christians brothers. That love which comes from God, which is in us, our love for other people increases, increases, and our love for God increases, increases. So this means you want to love God more, love your brother more. That'll show you how to love God more. You want to love your brother more, love God more. You want to love God more, love your brother more. This is why John was always going around saying love one another so much that people got tired of hearing it. (laughs) So this is how we know that we remain in him again here's the test again the love test the social test you love your brother that way you know that you remain in him again that word know he uses it all through the gospel he's poking fun at the gnostics who say you got to know the light the true god by climbing up through hierarchies of angels with secret passwords and slogans and so forth esoteric knowledge that only the gnostic gnostic false teachers could give no, 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 John say no, no, no. You know that. You don't need all that. You know God because you see that you're loving your brother. That's all the knowledge you need. He has given assurance to us from his spirit. Again, this is the social test. He's given assurance. You want to know whether you're in God? Look around. Are you loving your brother? If you are, that's not natural, folks. You don't do that naturally. Human beings don't naturally love one another. But if you're loving people who are of your different class, different race, different gender, different age, different interest. Or even if all of those things match, you're still going to find some reason not to like them because that's the way human beings are. But if you start overcoming that and you see that your love is blossoming, being perfected, and flowering, then that way you know that you're in God. Here's verse 20 that we're going to get to in just a minute. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother he has seen cannot love the God he has not seen. So John has just said, no one has seen God. And so... You say, well, why did he say that? Well, because he's talking about you can love your brother who you have seen. And he makes that clear in verse 20, which we haven't gotten to yet. For the person who does not love his brother he has seen cannot love the God he has not seen. Now, one more point in the Home of Christian Study Bible at the very end. It says he has given assurance to us from his spirit. Actually, the word assurance is not in the Greek. The Home of Christian Study Bible puts it in brackets. So literally it reads he has given to us from his spirit. So it could be. He's given us some gifts of the Spirit. It could be he's given us love from his Spirit, fruits of the Spirit. It's not really clear. But I guess from the context, the Holman Christian Study Bible says, well, he's given us assurance because we know, that's how we know we remain in him and he in us. And I think that's reasonable. So God gives us assurance, the social test. We love our brothers. We're in Christ. 1 John 4.14 And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. But we there probably refers to we apostles, John, because they saw Jesus. They met with him. They ate with him. They talked with him. So it could be we Christians have seen, but it's probably we apostles. They've seen that the Father sent his Son as the world's Savior. Why why is Jesus called God's Son? We do that instinctively because we see it all the time and hear it all the time, but do we ever think about it? Well, I mean, 
a son is born of the father. And obviously Jesus was not born of his father because there never was a time when Jesus was not. He's eternal. So why is he called a son? Well, a son has the characteristics of his father. So Jesus is divine like his father. That's why he's called the son. It does not mean there was a time when Jesus was not and then came into existence. We are not Arian Jehovah's Witness heretics. So they've seen and testify. Again, John is talking about the scene. He's repeating a theme that he has seen Jesus, and not only seen him, but heard him and touched him. First John 1, 1 through 3. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Again, John is talking about Actually seeing a human being, Jesus, not a ghost like the proto-Gnostic docetists were trying to teach falsely to the Christians that John was writing to. First John 1, 2, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify. Testify, we've given evidence and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare with you. So he's, again, going back to the evidentiary aspect of his message in First John. So... They testify that Jesus, the apostles testify that Jesus was the world's Savior. That doesn't mean every single person in the world. Obviously, it refers to all nations, tribes, and ethnic groups who are not Jews, Jews who are not Jewish. Again, John was Jewish, and a lot of, and the Jews had the idea that Jesus, God only saved Jews. He didn't save the whole people from the Gentile world. So he's talking about the world Savior means everybody in the Gentile world. It does not mean every individual. Then we have to believe in universal salvation and you would not believe in hell, in which case you would not be orthodox. You'd be a screwed up heretic. Oh, excuse me. Did I trigger somebody? Did that microaggression hurt somebody's feelings? I'm so sorry. We go to verse 15, 16, and 17 in 1 John 4. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, for we are as he is in the world. Now, we just talked about love being perfected. Again, God's love can't be perfected. It's already maxed out by its very nature. So this is our love for God, and our love for other people is completed or matured or perfected in us. And when that happens, we have confidence in the day of judgment, for we are as he is in the world. We are loving. We are justified. We are made righteous and holy, just as God or Jesus. Not sure who the he is there. Jesus in the world is loving, perfectly sinless. So he doesn't need to be justified before God. He's justified by God by his very nature and by his, as the theologians say, his passive and active obedience. He was perfect. God has no reason to be upset with the son. And since Jesus is in us and his love is in us being perfected every day, we have confidence we're not going to get judged. Again, he's going after the Christian's lack of assurance in this book. You can tell that they're worried. You know, we don't know God like these Gnostic teachers are telling us we know God and we can't see him. And, and oh my goodness, we, we've committed a sin here. So that means, oh my goodness, we're not saved. John is trying to say, hey, you're saved. Because when Jesus shows up to judge the world, he's not going to judge you. Because you're loving your brother. And that love had to come from Jesus. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Now this confession, of course, means a heart belief. A confession of a heart belief. Not mere mental assent like the demons do. The demons knew who Jesus was, but they weren't saved. John is jabbing at the heretics who won't confess that Jesus is the Son of God, as Adam Clark points out. 
God remains in him. The King James, the New American Standard has abides. I think the King James does too. I like that translation better. God abides in him. It's just something about it that seems cool that God just stays and stays and stays and stays in the one who confesses that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Son of God. In is in union with, so God remains in union with this confessor. And he, the one who confesses God, is in union with God. Nothing's going to tear us apart. Verse 16, we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. That's the second time he's mentioned that. He's mentioned that in verse 8, which we went over just a minute ago. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And as Grudem pointed out, his essence is love. It's not merely one of his attributes. It doesn't say God is a loving God. It says God is love, full stop. Now, I must say that argument might be a little strong because we say, or the word is is used sometimes to equate the essence of the subject with the nominative predicate, but it's also used to show an attribute like the rose is red. Well, the essence of the rose is not redness, but an attribute is. So I don't know how Groom can say for sure that God is love. It shows that it's his essence is love as opposed to just one of his attributes. If I was in a class with Mr. Grudem, Dr. Grudem, I would ask that question, but it doesn't really matter to me. There are other attributes of God, too, namely his justice that is not being mentioned here. We could take one of those attributes and say that's his essence, too. I don't know. All I know is that God is love and he is justice, too. Otherwise, you'll never explain hell without the justice of God. God is love and the one who remains in love remains in God, in union with God, and God in union with you. There's the union life, if you will. One little ambiguous phrase here in this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment for we are as he is in the world well first of all the he could be jesus could be god let's say it's jesus for we are as jesus is in this world well who's in the world the we us or jesus in the world i think he's talking about we but it's not clear we are in the world like jesus was in the world because jesus was sinless and we are sinless in the eyes of God because we are legally justified before God, even though we are practically not actually sinless. We go now to verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Again, John is talking about the lack of assurance that the Christians that he's writing to have, the lack of assurance which I'm sure came from those false teachers. Anytime you start teaching people what they got to do in order to make God happy, the first thing that goes is assurance because there is, there is nobody who can do enough to keep God from being angry. Nobody. It takes the blood of Jesus. But if you, instead of worrying about whether you're saved or not and how many good works you can do and how much knowledge you've got, if you go around loving your brother, guess what? Then that fear of losing your salvation is gone. There is no fear in love. And again, that's probably love of the brother. It could be love of God. But it's again, the two are so closely intertwined. The more love you see in your life, the less fear you have that God is going to come wipe you out. That reminds me of an old country song that went like this. God's going to get you for that. God's going to get you for that. And it went through a litany of petty sins that people do. And God's going to get you for that. I said, you know, there's something lacking there in the presentation of the gospel in that country song. Well, if you were, that's, that's preaching God as a God that hates his children and that is just trying to catch his children in something wrong. And this kind of God is going to do nothing but create fear in the child no we need love we don't need a legalistic god is constantly trying to find fault with us i remember just last week talking to a chinese christian very dedicated young woman 
who was going to two churches, one of which was a um, run by an American missionary over there, or American. He was always telling her what she should do. And then she went to a Chinese uh, church, and she said she was going to have to make a decision sooner or later because her pastors were in competition with one another. I said, what do you mean in competition with one another? That's unusual because they don't even speak the same language. And she said, well, I go to the American church, and all it does is talk about what you can't do. But I go to the Chinese church, and they love one another. And they just are so happy and joyous. And this is an unsophisticated one-year-old baby Christian who doesn't understand theology too much. But she saw the difference instantly. And I'll tell you, you want to turn Christians off from Christianity? Start talking about God's going to get you for that. Instead of doing that, talk about love. Love your brother and love God. And then people are going to have assurance. They're not going to be afraid of God. Uh, Just yesterday, someone called me and told me that there was a friend of hers who was constantly living in fear because Jesus was going to come back and get her. You know, all this last day's madness stuff, which I abhor. This Christian mythology, Christian science fiction about the pre-trib rapture and the nuclear bombs and all that kind of nonsense, which Gary DeMar has brilliantly skewered in his book, Last Day's Madness. But she was living in fear. She says, I'm tired of it. I'm not going to let people talk to me about the mark of the beast anymore. I'm sick of it. That is a perverted form of Christianity, folks. And down here in the south of America where I live, I've heard it all my life. And I reject it the way an ex-alcoholic rejects a glass of wine. Perfect love cast out fear. Is that love of men or fear in the day of judgment? Gill suggests both options. I think he's talking about fear in the day of judgment. Fear of God more than the fear of men. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Oh, yes, it's not. We first love God, therefore he loves us. Isn't that the way we think? Because we're born as Armenians, and until we get educated in the scriptures, we think as Armenians. Let's quote the famous Calvinist verse here, John 6.44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent draws me. No one is able to come to the Father. He can't come. Therefore, he draws us, and therefore, he first loved us. And then as a result of that, what he did for us, we love him back. As John says in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 20 through 21, and we'll finish up the chapter. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Now again, John is talking about the hypocrisy of the false teachers. They're talking about all their knowledge of God, and yet they treat one another with contempt, which proves that they are liars. Adam Clark says it's not really aimed, however, at the false teachers, but seems to be aimed at the Jews who love to hate Gentiles. The Jews were famous for saying bad things about Gentiles. They called them dogs routinely. Who I wonder how they would manage to make it in present-day America where you can't say anything that might offend somebody with a microaggression. Well, the Jews weren't like that, boy. They just call out and out call Gentiles dogs. And, of course, John is writing to Jewish believers probably. Well, maybe not. I don't know. But there's a lot of Jewish believers that he's writing to. He himself was Jewish. He knew that attitude, and so he's trying to fight against it and say, no, no, you got you love your brother. You don't hate him. I don't care what your culture says about Gentiles. Now, notice that. This is a commandment that we have from Jesus, that the one who loves God shall love his brother also. Loving your brother is not a suggestion. It's not an option. It's a commandment. 
He also said the same thing in chapter 3 of 1 John, verse 23. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Well, where did Jesus command us to love one another? To love one another. John 13, 34, famous scripture. A new commandment, I, Jesus, is talking, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. A commandment, folks, not an option. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. I don't care how much you love people, you can always love them more because people are basically unlovable, and so it's a challenge, an extreme challenge you can never love enough. Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's loving your brother. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So this was a command. So when John says in 1 John 4, verse 21, this commandment we have from him, he's referring back to what Jesus said in John 13, which he himself, John, recorded, that we're supposed to love one another. It's a commandment. Now, Jesus also said, pray for your enemies. I was challenged on that once time. So yeah, how about all these people that are tearing up America, destroying America, the snowflake millennial cancel culture people who are full of bigotry and hatred going around telling everybody how they're racist when they themselves are the biggest racist in the world. So I was challenged. I forgot maybe by myself, maybe by the Lord. I don't remember, but, but the idea is to pray for these people, pray for these Antifa people that are tearing up the cities with their hatred and their Marxist violence because they are heading for judgment. And so I've started praying that God would save some people out of the midst of these. It's a hard thing to do. It's not easy. Of course, now, that's not your brother. That's not loving your brother. That's loving your enemy. But, heck, if you can love your enemy, surely we should love our brother. Because loving your brother, by definition, is going to be easier than loving your enemy. Well, Jesus says you love your enemy and your brother. Ladies and gentlemen, we are finished now with First John chapter 4. We're going to, in our next audio, take up the examination of First John 5, 1 through 12, which has as its theme, Overcoming the World. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 